we do in life. You know, um, by the way, we're in the process of trying to get this uh, pipe fixed over here, this gas line, so we can get the heat back on in the church. It's not too bad. We thank the Lord for some warm weather. Uh, but we're trying to get that going. Should, Lord willing, have that back in on Sunday. So uh, you'll be praying about that. Just praying that God will uh, allow that to happen and uh, we'll get that back in. I'm preaching tonight on another great word in the Bible. Another great word in the Bible out of Matthew chapter number 17. And so we're going to begin with verse number one and God's precious word tonight. Matthew chapter 17 and follow along as we read this passage of Scripture. The Bible says here, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. Now that's the word I'm preaching on tonight, the word transfigured, all right? And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Let's pray tonight. We'll get into the message. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessings. And God, tonight as we open the Bible, we just pray that you give us a, a heart and a mind, Lord, to desire its truths. And Lord, thank you that it uh, speaks to our heart. Thank you for that song tonight, how Jesus can change our life. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you changed our life one day. And uh, we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray again, you take thy word and, Lord, change our lives with it and use it in our hearts and our minds. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought before I got into this word, the word transfigured tonight that I want to open up to you tonight, I thought I would give you a little bit of a history about Bible words and understanding some things about words in the Bible. Now, by the way, let me say this. We serve a God who has preserved the very words of Scripture. The words that are in Scripture are the very words that God has given to us to know. And uh, we know that because God said that in His Word. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The Bible also reminds us that every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. So when we look at the words tonight, we're going to look at some things 
about background to understanding a little bit about words in the Bible. So I'm going to start tonight with a quiz. How many of you want to have a quiz? Anybody want to have a quiz? Too bad. We're going to have one anyway, okay? So we're going to get a quiz tonight to help us understand a little bit about words in the Bible. Now I'm going to ask you a question, and we'll keep some order here. So if you know the answer, raise your hand, all right? If you don't raise your hand, you get demerits, all right? So raise your hand. And I'm going to ask you a question, all right? Now, number one, here's my first question. Here's the question. What language was the New Testament originally written in? <laughs> what language, all right? Brother Brandon's hand was up first. I'm going to call on him. Greek, okay. Uh, actually, Koine Greek, which is a little different from modern Greek today, but very, very similar. So that is right. You get $100, all right? All right. And uh, if you win some money tonight, Mrs. Bingham will pay it after the service. And, and so, so uh, we'll, we'll get that taken care of, okay? Okay, here's question number two. And it gets a little stickier, all right? Here we go. How did Greek get to Israel when Greek was not the language of the land. In other words, why is the Bible written in Greek when Greek was not the language of Israel? You want to take a stab at that, Ms. Sandra? She wins $100, all right? Boy, it's getting bad for Mrs. Bingham, all right? How many of you heard of a guy named Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great was a great Roman ruler who conquered the known world, mainly the Mediterranean, Asia Minor area uh, from Spain. And he was such a great conqueror, a Greek man. He came into Israel, swooped into Israel, conquered it, and through him established the Greek language throughout all the known world, or should I say, most of the known world. And that happened about three or four hundred years before Christ came. Now you remember after he came, uh, there was another group that conquered the Greeks. Those were the Romans. And one of the things the Romans did was they adopted much of the Greek language. They also had Latin in it. But Greeks stayed in the area of Israel for many, many centuries. So that's how uh, the, the English language got into Greek. All right, now here's a third question. This is a $200 question, all right? Here we go. What language then did Jesus speak? What language then, this is a loaded question, by the way. What language did Jesus speak? Who wants to take a stab at that one? Miss Bingham? You would say Hebrew? All right, anybody else want to take a stab at it? Titus? What? That's because I told you that in my office before the service started tonight. It's not fair, you don't win $200. Here's the answer to that question Jesus spoke all three. Now, how do we know that? Of course, he was Jesus, so he could speak any language, right? 
Okay, but we do know he spoke all three languages. We know he spoke Hebrew because he communicated with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, uh, the, the religious rulers at the time, and they were very insistent on using the Hebrew language. So we know he spoke Hebrew. Secondly, we know he spoke Aramaic. How do we know that? Because the city where he grew up was called Nazareth. He spent a lot of time in Nazareth and also Capernaum by the, by the, uh, the Dead Sea. Those two cities spoke complete Aramaic at the time. So Jesus grew up speaking Aramaic. Now the third one is Greek. How do we know that Jesus spoke the Greek language? Well, we know that because Jesus spoke to the Roman centurion. And the Romans would have known Greek also. And there were many people. See, Greek, Greek was a language that was spread throughout all the world. So a traveler could come all the way from Spain and travel all the way across the Mediterranean, come to Israel, and he could communicate and sell things and do business there because Greek was so common in all of that area. Okay? So, Jesus spoke all three languages. Okay, now it's getting a little tougher, so stay with me. Here's the next question. Why then was Greek the language chosen for the New Testament to be written in? I mean, couldn't it have been Aramaic or Hebrew? Why then was it Greek? Brother Bingham, he's going to take a stab at it. Right. The whole point of giving us the Bible in Greek was so that it could go throughout the whole world. You remember Jesus, uh, before he died, he told his disciples, and, and this is actually the church, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So by writing the scriptures in Greek and sending them throughout the whole world, that's why the Apostle Paul did not have to learn uh, a language when he went on his missionary journey. Why? Because everywhere he went, they spoke Greek. Now, yes, they did speak other languages also, but Greek was the predominant language of the world at that time, probably except for the Far East, China, and that area, uh, and that region of the world. But the rest of it was Greek. So, God wanted the gospel to go to all the world. Now, how then, um, at that time, English was not very well known. English, over the centuries after Christ died, became more and more prominent. And um, how then did we get the Bible from Greek into English? And I'm referring to the New Testament. How then did we get the Bible from Greek into English? When did that happen? Nobody going to take a stab at it? William Tyndall. William Tyndall. You're just racking up the money tonight, brother. <laughs> William Tyndall. William Tyndall was uh, an Englishman, and he translated the Bible in 1525 from Greek into English, the New Testament. 
Now, um, let me say this. Um, the reason he did that is because it became necessary. Little by little, the English language began to proliferate throughout all the world. And today, English is probably the most predominant language of the world today, um, and Greek is not. And so, it changed, and the necessity for the Bible to be in English. Well, then you remember about 100 years later, um, King James commissioned the, ten, the uh, King James Bible in 16, actually he commissioned it in 1603, and it came uh, to fruition in 1611. And so we have God's Word now in English. Okay, now let's step a little further. I won't give you a quiz on this one, but uh, let's step just a little further because we're getting to transfigured, all right? We're getting there. All right, number one. Um, now, there's three things to understand about Bible words. And when you translate a word from one language, like from Greek, it had to be translated from Greek to English, okay? And so there's three things to understand about this. Here's the first one, is that there are, no, there are some words in the English language that cannot be equally translated from Greek into English. There are some words that do not mean exactly the same from 2,000 years ago Koine Greek transferred over, or I'm sorry, translated into the English language. Um, let me give you an example. There is the word visited. Now, if I asked you to give me the definition of the word visited, um, you might uh, have a definition of the pastor came over and visited me. Uh, we stayed, he ate six donuts, and then he left. And he went home, okay? Now that might be a similar definition to visited. But in the Bible, in, in the Greek, the word visited can actually have different meanings or different stages of visiting. In one time, uh, one time when it, when it talks about visited, it means came and actually took care of a person for a, for, for a whole long process. Um, and even Paul talked about this when he said he was in prison and no man visited me. What he means is nobody came and took care of me. Nobody came and saw to it my needs or was there daily on a, a constant basis. He doesn't mean somebody popped in and said hello and then left. So this is what I mean by when I say some of the words in the English language cannot be equally translated. Now, there's a big word for that. It's called dynamic equivalency. Now, that's a big word. So if you forget it, don't worry about it, all right? But what it means is that translators try their best to find the exact way to translate a word. Now, this is why I trust the King James Version is because there were over 60 men that took eight years and they divided the New Testament up into three sections and as three separate groups they translated the King James Bible. When they were done with it, they sent their translation to the next group to check it 
and they received a translation, translated group from another. In other words, they just kept shifting this to where every passage of Scripture was, was checked and triple-checked by over 60 men. And these men were men who were very intelligent. Some of them knew over 40 different languages. They were so intelligent and very knowledgeable. And I, I hate it when people today get on the internet and criticize the scholarship of the King James Bible as if it was done willy-nilly like the Westcott Hort text was. Uh, and it bothers me, it irritates me, and I, I want to send them a book if, if their pint-sized brain would actually read it. But they do not understand uh, this situation. So, by the way, um, if you can't always translate a word, they do their best to make the word exactly like it was meant in Scripture. Okay, um, how many of you remember when Jesus went into Samaria to visit the woman in the well? Jesus said these words, I must needs go to Samaria. Now that understanding, that translation had been checked by 66 men. It's been triple checked. And here's why it says it that way, because there's no exact equivalency of translating that word exactly as it was in the, in the original Greek. So, they checked it all these times to get it as, as close and as exact as they possibly could. And that is the understanding of what they came up with. Okay? So, when we study a word, we have to understand it doesn't always equal out. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you should not have faith in your Bible. Okay? It does not mean that at all. And it doesn't mean you need to know Greek to understand your Bible. You don't. That's why such great care was taken when the Scriptures were translated by the King James uh, scholars. It took them over eight years to do it. They didn't do it willy-nilly. They did it very, very carefully. All right? Now, there's a second thing to understand about Bible words. We're getting there. Hold on. We're getting there. Secondly, words can change meaning over time. Words can change meaning. For example, there is an old English word called awful. Do you know the word awful actually means worthy of awe? It actually did. It's the exact opposite of what we mean it today. We mean, you know, that was awful. But in Bible days, it meant full of awe or uh, amazement. So it's an example of how a word can change. Um, the word clue, the word clue used to mean a ball of yarn. It was a clue. Or the word, I like this one, the word senile. <laughs> you know what the word senile used to mean? It used to mean anyone of old age not just somebody that had dementia. It meant if you were old, you were senile. Okay? It didn't, you didn't have to have dementia to fit the category. Okay? So, understand that words are different. And sometimes you'll read a word in the Bible and it had a different meaning 
1611 when it was translated as to what it does now, okay? So this is why many times they say, well, we need up-to-date translations of the Bible. That's why we got to update the translation so we can understand it in our modern language. Can I tell you what? We don't need that. We don't need that. We just need to get in the Bible and study it. Study to show ourselves approved unto God. If we'll get in and dig in it a little bit, we'll find what God is trying to say. And by the way, um, it, it, it doesn't, um, there, there is nothing, no word, not one word that was translated in the King James Bible that's going to lead you astray in a wrong, evil meaning. Okay? It's not going to do that, but there are words that are different from one generation to another, from one country to another. All right, you still with me? Number three, there are different tenses and different moods in the Greek that are not in the English vocabulary. Um, there is, in an English language, you know, we have uh, past, present, future tenses. Okay? There's eight tenses in modern Greek today. Eight different tenses. So we look at and can say past, present, and future. Um, and by the way, the Hebrew only has three tenses, which makes translation much easier. But when you come to the Greek, you've got all these tenses that cannot quite adequately be explained in English because we only have three. Same with mood. Um, you may say the, uh, remember when you were in English class and you had to diagram sentences and it was the past particular of something or the, the past perfect? Remember that? I try to forget all that, but yeah. remember those, the, your English teacher teaching you that? <laughs> well, how about this? The indicative active or the declarative or the imperative mood or tense. A lot of that we don't have. Uh, how about the aorist tense? Some words in Greek mean they happen at a point in time and they continued on through the future. We don't have a tense that can describe that. We have past, present, and future. So can you see how difficult it would be to translate it um, equivalent to the understanding. And that is why it required men who were godly men and men who were intelligent, scholarly men that understood language. And that is the exact... Let me tell you something. The Bible translators today get a few guys together and in a year, they've whooped out the new, the new latest, greatest version. And, 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 there's, and by the way, they use the wrong text on it to do it. And that's the real problem. Okay? So, when it comes to Bible words, um, we have to understand that we can put our faith solidly on the Bible that we hold. Because those writers did exactly what they believed was right to do, and over 60 of them agreed that that word 
understood meant that and, in, and translated it from the Textus Receptus in that manner to our Bible, and that's how we can know God and understand. Okay? That's a long introduction. Okay? But I wanted you to understand some of these things just because as we study a Bible or you study a verse, sometimes there is a meaning and an understanding that we don't always see. And so, um, <laughs> Matthew now is uh, in Bible college and he calls me and asks, he's asking me all these deep questions. And uh, he's got to do Greek. I said, yeah, you need Greek. Do Greek. Do Greek. He said, you know, some theology majors, they try to avoid Greek. No, don't avoid it. Don't avoid it. Titus, we had to, we had to pay his teacher off to get him through Greek. But, <laughs> you know, but he, he got there. Amen. Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's go to our text tonight and let's unfold it and see what God is saying. All right. Matthew 17. Now, understand here, Jesus, the Bible says in verse 1, he takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he takes them up unto a high mountain. Now, he's up on this high mountain with these three disciples. We don't know why he didn't take the others. We just know Peter, James, and John went with him. And he gets up into the mountain, up on the top of the mountain, and something changes in Jesus. What happened? Verse 2, and he and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Okay, now let's... The word transfigured, here's what it means. It means that he changed, but he changed true to his nature. That's very important. He changed, but he did not change who he really was. He was God in the flesh, wasn't he? You see, here's what Peter and James and John knew of Jesus. They knew that he came as a servant, didn't he? He came in the form of a servant, according to Philippians chapter 2. He was humble. He took upon himself the, the form of a servant. He didn't come to be ministered unto. He came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He, they knew him as the one that would heal. He, he healed people. He, he, um, he did all these things as a servant. He was meek. He was lowly. And we understand that that is what Jesus was. But now he transfigures here in this passage. And what it means is that he stays true to who he was. And what, it, what it's saying is, is that he was God, so he didn't change what he was not from being a servant. He was a servant, and he was God at the same time. All right, now, that's very important, because we're going we're gonna to unfold some things here in a little bit about this word transfigured. But let's go through the rest of the story real quick and see what happens. So they're up on the mountain. Jesus transfigures before them. His face shined as the sun. What he was doing was he, he was showing them his deity, showing them the glory of God. It was what's called the Shekinah glory of God. It was God's holy glory. 
And this was probably the first time they had seen this. Okay, verse 3. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Now, wait a minute. Moses and Elias were dead. Why did they appear here at this time? First of all, we don't know. But one guess is, is that both Eli, Elias, which is Elijah, both Elijah and Moses had already seen the glory of God. Remember Moses at the burning bush? And what happened when he got done with that experience of seeing God? His face shone uh, brightly because he was seeing the glory of God. Elijah also, you remember, he went up to heaven in a whirlwind. God came up, he took chariot and went to heaven in a whirlwind. And when he got there, he was human flesh seeing the glory of God. So now these two figures return and they're standing by Jesus and Peter pipes up. <laughs> okay. This is, uh, this is interesting. Verse 4, Then answered Peter and said unto the Lord, to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Okay, now you may not understand this, but he's being very somewhat carnal. He's saying, oh, Moses and Jesus are all here. If the glory of God is shining, why is it? He on his face. And what he's doing is, he's saying, Lord, let me build a little protection over Elijah, and, and let's build some protection over the three, all three of you, so, you know, the rain and the sun don't beat down on you. And in his carnal way, and Peter was very much carnal until, you know, Pentecost, I think that changed him. But anyhow... Uh, Peter was really saying, let me put this uh, covering over you so, you know, the rain doesn't get... We'll, let, we'll build a tabernacle over you. We'll kind of cover, cover you. Uh, what happens? Right in the middle of what he's speaking, what happens? Verse 5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. So Peter's talking, he's going on, and this cloud moves in, and, and God moves in. And the reason God probably moved in on a cloud is because no man can see the face of God and live. And so he moved in on a cloud, and, and he's, he speaks to them, and what he does is, He's saying to the disciples, and, and remember, there's only three of them here. Hear him. This is Jesus. He is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, here's what really the essence of the passage is teaching us. He's teaching man, he's teaching these men that Jesus was God. He is God. He's the glory of God. And this glory that Jesus has is given from Jesus, and he's soon going to go to the cross and die. And do you remember this? 
You remember when he was up on the cross and he died? Do you remember what some of them said about Jesus when he was up on the cross? They looked up and they said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So what they wanted to, what this was about was to again solidify the fact that Jesus was God, he was of, he had God's glory, and that he was the one that was supposed to be heard and listened to. And, and so God himself comes down and establishes the fact that Jesus, his son, and, and turns the focus onto Jesus. Wow, that's powerful. And then they finally fell on their face because they knew it was God. They fell on their face, and when they looked up, all they saw left was Jesus. So the point of the passage is to point to the deity of Jesus that he was God in the flesh. Now, that's why when he transfigured, he was true to who he was. Because when he transfigured, he changed, and um, his face shone. The glory of God was seen in this word, transfigured. All right, now, we're not done yet. The word transfigured is the same meaning word, but in other passages of Scripture. So I want you to take your Bible and go with me to Ephesians. Uh, no, go to Romans chapter 12. Go to Romans chapter 12. Are you still with me? All right, Romans chapter 12. Now you know these verses, but we're going to read them. And I'm going to show you there's a word in here that means the exact same as transfigured. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but what? Be ye transformed. The word transform is the same word transfigured. Now what does it mean? It means that when Christ comes into your heart, you live for him. You are portraying what you really are, where, which is Christ in you. If you're saved and Christ is in you, and by the way, this is why the Holy Spirit comes in to live inside of us, because when he does that and we witness we are being true to what's truly inside of us. We are speaking of what we have inside of us when we're witnessing. And that's what the word transformed means. It means be true to what you really are. And if you're saved, you're a child of God. You're, um, and just like Jesus was true to what he really was, when he was transfigured, so a Christian who has Christ in him should be exactly what God is in him 
And that is called being true to what God put inside of you. That's what transform means. Now, there's another word in here that is conformed. Be not conformed to the world. Now, here's what conform means. It means to be something on the outside that you really are not on the inside. So notice what the verse means. God's saying, don't be what you're not on the inside. Be transformed. I came to live inside of you. Be true to the Christ who lives inside of you. And that's exactly what it means. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be, be true to what God is. You know, when we go to the grocery store, there's still a God in us. And we have to be true wherever we go. When we find ourselves in a crowd or a worldly crowd, you know, you ever been to a ball game or ever been to a sports event? It's a worldly crowd. Hey, I want to tell you something. We're transformed people. We have to be true to what's in us everywhere we go. And this is what God is trying to teach us. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't fit, try to fit in with the world. You know, a lot of people are trying to fit in. Fit in the world. Christians are trying to fit in with the world. That's being conformed. Hey, if you're saved, if you're truly saved, be transformed. And be truly holy, the Lord Jesus is. Now, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. <clears throat> this word transformed, which means the same thing here. Um, the same word transformed is used, but it's a different Greek word. All right, now I want to show it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and let's look at verse number 13. Notice it says there, verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, here it is, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, the word transform or transforming is used three times in this passage, and it means completely different. It's the same word, but it's completely different than transfigured or transformed in Romans chapter uh, 12. Here's what it means. It means in this word to masquerade or to disguise yourself. So from the text, these words transforming. Notice in verse 14 it says Satan himself is transformed. He's masquerading as an angel of light. It's not the other Greek word which means he's true to himself and he shows you what it is. He's putting on a mask. He is being deceitful. He's showing on the outside what he is not on the inside. It's the opposite 
of the word transformed. Now, you say, well, why didn't they use a different word? And they didn't use a different word because that word is the word that best and adequately explains what Satan is. He is transformed. But when you go from English, Greek to English, you can't always get that exact different word. So a little bit of study helps us understand the word. And that's what I'm driving at. But here, this word here means to masquerade. Now, not only is Satan masquerading, but notice his false prophets are doing the same thing. They are putting on a front that is not inside of them. There is a falseness to the false because they're trying to show something that they're really, they don't have Christ in them. They can't be true to themselves. They cannot be what they really are because what they really are is from Satan. So they put the mask on in hopes that people will believe him, but the Greek word shows the difference that they are simply disguisers of truth and right. Boy, I'll tell you what, all you got to do is turn on the television to the, to the religious channel or whatever you call that. And I want to tell you something. You're going to see that Greek word right there. You're going to see them appearing what they don't have inside. I want to tell you something. Only when a person is saved, only when a person is saved and Christ is inside them, can they genuinely witness for Christ. But a lost man cannot adequately and cannot even cause the understanding to be there of what it's like to be saved because they don't even have it in them. It's not real. It's a masquerade. So, what do we learn from an understanding of this. Well, there's three things. Three things to understand. Number one, the reason Christ indwells believers is so that we can be the witness for Christ that he put inside of us. You know, oftentimes, you see, soul winning and witnessing is not like going off a script. Yes, there's things we ought to learn. There are verses. There is a pathway to show them. So don't get me wrong. But it's not like we're reading off a script that we don't already have inside of us. I want to tell you something. If you tell somebody your testimony of what God had in you, they can see the difference of God in you because you are genuinely transformed because you've been saved. He's already in you. And your witness is true to the very transformation that God has made in your heart. So being a Christian who witnesses to people, hey, it's a good thing. If you you have nothing else to say, just start giving your testimony and start telling somebody that's lost what happened to you from your heart. Amen? Simple thing. Simple thing. You know, have you ever asked somebody who's lost? 
I've asked people who are lost, and I've said, so tell me about your salvation. What happened to you? Well, <laughs> it's empty. They don't know. But they want to put that mask on so they don't, you don't think that they're bad people. So they put that mask on. Oh, I've, I, I've been baptized. Hey, listen, you can get baptized on the outside, but what happened on the inside? That's the difference. That's the difference. So this is, this is how a Christian lives their everyday life. We're transformed people. He lives inside of us. Just let him live. Let God live in the world in which he put in us already. So we can learn that from this. Secondly, it's hopeless to have a transformed life without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. You cannot have a transformed life. You can have a transformed life in the wrong Greek word, right? Like Satan, you can have a mask on, but you can't really be <coughs> what's genuine, what God really did inside of you. Amen? And by the way, we fail, and we fail God all the time. But he never leaves us. Amen. He never forsakes us. He is always going to be right there with us. And you may fail and falter, but if he's inside of you, he is going to continue his work in us and through us to this lost world. So it's hopeless to live a transformed life. You know, this is why a lot of people try a government program uh, turn over a new leaf, uh, a New Year's resolution, you know, or I'm going to start going to church. And all those things are masquerading what you need because what people really need is Christ inside of them. And it changes, it changes our whole desire, it changes our whole life, and it gives us a whole new pattern uh, of, what, of, of, of a way to live. And that way is to live with the Holy Spirit in our heart and our life. So forget good works. Get saved. And then through the Holy Spirit, the good works come in our life. Number three, if God is in you, live true to the Holy Spirit, which desires to control us. If God is in you, live true to the Holy Spirit, which desires to control us. You know, situations should not control us. You may get, have trouble or problems in, in your life. Don't let it take away the, that, that Holy Spirit uh, solidness in your heart. Don't put on that mask and be something different. That same God who knew about that situation problem, he's still there. Just be true to the same God that's in you. And that same God that's in you is the God that will carry you through every trial and every problem. Isn't that a blessing? Because he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So when troubles come or problems come, I'm just going to be the same Christian 
that I always was. I don't need to change. Now, don't get me wrong. If there's something wrong in my life, I need to change that and be true to the Holy Spirit who's in me. But when a trouble comes or a circumstance in life erupts in my life, I'm just going to be the same Christian that God put in me. He's already there in me, and he will work that situation out. Amen. And so problems should never change our loyalty to him. Um, heartaches should not change our loyalty to, to him because we have been transformed, and we're living true, true to the one who sees us. You know, the world sees us sometimes go through trials and problems. And you know, the world really is looking to see what carries us through the problem or what carries us through that trial. So if we're transformed and we're saved, that same God was there before the trial and he's there during the trial and he will be there after the trial. And our God, and this, you know, this whole world is seeing how we handle the trials because when they don't have anything in them and they endure the same trial, they know they would crumble. They, they know they could not handle it. And it would cause them great trouble. But when they see somebody who's constant through everything, they wish that's what they had. And I want to tell you something. It is a tool that God uses to draw men to Christ. Is when he sees the Holy Spirit working through us and in us, and we're true to him in everything we do. So when you go through problems and trials, always remember this. God is still right there the same as he's ever been. And we just need to keep on trusting him like we did before the trial ever arose in our life. So, the words, getting back to the words. Jesus was true to who he was. He just had to show them. And you know what? That's exactly the pattern that we need in our life. Because Jesus was true. He's our pattern. We can be true to the God who lives inside of us. And everywhere we go, hey, listen, I may find myself in some rough place sometime. I may find myself in a, in a, in a situation I don't want to be in. It teaches me, this passage teaches me to be true to the same God wherever I go, wherever I'm at. Because God said we're transformed. Satan is not transformed in the same way. He's transformed in a mask. He has a mask on, but there's nothing inside of him. Thank God as a Christian, we have Christ inside of us. Amen. And what it teaches us is to let God live through our life. Everywhere we go, be true to the God who saved you. Amen. Let's bow our heads tonight. Let's close our eyes. Just a Bible study, simple Bible study tonight on a very powerful word. But let me ask you tonight, are you trans...